You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Okay, everyone, welcome to our special episode of the 29th Annual Conference for Libraries in the Future, Diversity, Democracy, and Engagement. This is a LORIC event, Long Island Library Resources Council, and they've invited us back again for our fourth year to be podcasting at the conference. So our first guest today is Nancy Kronick, who is the Special Projects Research Librarian and faculty at Rutgers University and former president of ALA. So thank you for coming on the podcast with us. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So one thing that you talked about that really, really struck a chord with me was the idea of outreach versus engagement. So here at Sage, and we actually have an engagement department. And they go out into the community. And it's not just going to the schools. It's also going to community events, talking to the local chambers, going to the car shows, going to the street fairs, and getting the name out there. But can you tell us, uh, as you did before in your keynote, what the difference is between outreach and engagement? So I think that one of the the sort of mantras that came out of the 60s movement for outreach was that we need to take the library to the people. So we want to go to these events so the library is branded, so the library is seen. That's taking the library to the people. That's outreach. Engaging with the people is getting out there with them without really promoting the library is just to talk about what's on their mind. We might be able to say, this is how the library can help. But we're there together as members of their community, hearing about what their aspirations and concerns are. What are they struggling with? What kinds of opportunities are there for people to get together and work through some of these issues? Uh, What are they disagreeing about? You know, disagreement is healthy if we can find some constructive ways to work through it. So it's not to necessarily push the library. The library presence is important, but I don't think that we need to be at the table with a big L on our chest. What we need to do is to have a big L as a listener, a different kind of L, is to hear. And I think we can be, we can create so much more of relevant and significant programs when we're listening to the community, hearing what they care about. And then working together with the community to find ways to really deal with those issues in a constructive and whatever other way is, is necessary. But it's up to the community. And I think uh, it's so easy to end game. We think we know. And I kind of, I didn't get into it real uh, specifically, but I... Um, I have this newer article that came out in in uh, last April, revisiting libraries and democracy. I get into this a lot. Is the library faith idea that we think we're good and we're out there to do good, and sort of getting ourselves out of that we're special, and being a part, just being a participant ourselves, rather than coming in as the expert. I mean, our whole way of learning librarianship is to be neutral. We can be neutral and should be neutral when it comes to building our collections and responding to people's questions. But when we're out in the community, we want to be participants and learners. 
bring the library with us, but not to promote the library, but to build the capacity of the community to work together. And the library being that catalytic organization or the boundary spanning organization to help do that. Because who else do you turn to? You know, I live in a town where our mayor is a really good catalytic person. She seems to want to bring people together, but uh, she's the first mayor we've had since I've lived here that ever even raised that issue. And when I talked to her about it recently, when she appointed me to the library board, she was really excited about the idea. And part of the reason is because we have this great community, which I'm sure yours is as well, but it is very segregated. People are in their own little groups and they're bonded together, but they're not really bridged together. And that bridging role that we can play to just ask simple questions, you know, to get into issues, to, to convene people at a table, to ask them questions, to get to know each other, introduce people to each other. One of the reasons I think we're so divided is we don't know each other. One of the places in our community that brings people together is our schools, as long as our public schools represent most of the public. I mean, we have a lot of communities where kids segregate by going off to private schools or the schools themselves are segregated. But when kids, and I know this happens at Rutgers. So Rutgers is the one of the most diverse universities in the United States. And when students come to Rutgers, they don't come from diverse communities. New Jersey is very segregated. We've got almost 600 towns, about the same number as in Texas. And each one of those towns, most of them are segregated. So when they come to Rutgers, they're not familiar with being in a diverse population, but somehow something happens to them when they get here. And you see them walking down the street with people of all colors and persuasions coming together. Well, they work together. They go to school together. They, they have this environment where they share and something happens that does a blending and an equalizing. And how can we be that role in our communities? Because universities can do that. University libraries can do that. College libraries, but community libraries, school libraries could do that too. We can play that role of introducing the community to each other and just giving them a chance to be together and learn together. Well, that makes a lot of sense too. I mean, in terms of, it's more than just rolling out the red carpet to the building. Um, it's about reaching out to different uh, organizations within the community and they can be either um, civic associations, uh, chambers of commerce, uh, even just going door to door uh, from business to business, because you're going to be engaging people from all races, creeds, and colors who are in business doing the business of whatever they do for the community. And at the end of the day, no matter what you do, you are doing a service for the community that you're in. So it it does make a lot of sense to, to go out and say, how can we help? How can we work together? Exactly. So Not just how can we help you, but how can we work together correct. to help the community? I mean, I think that putting that community, that idea of turning outward that I talked about, it sounds really good, but it is a subtle pivot that's difficult. So when I teach my community engagement class, I try to, there's exercises and different things we do, and I spend the whole semester trying to give them a community orientation. 
but I have to undo a lot of the training they have in other library programs because so much of what we train for and what we do in our libraries is promote the library. And it's sort of hard to get people out of that mode is how do we push ourselves? It's really how do we be a player? Just it's different. But it's very powerful when it happens. And you know it when you see it, as they say. Yeah. And and what's interesting about libraries here on Long Island is that every library is a different flavor. So Bob's Bob's library has a different flavor than than my library does. Emma Clark is a very historic library and a very historic district. Uh, yes, Sachem is has his, some history, but not in the same way that you know there was there wasn't a culprit spy ring here in in uh, in Holbrook. But in terms of each library, they all have their own flavor, their own distinct characteristics, as do the communities. So let me ask you this, and we're probably going to broach this question with a bunch of our guests today. How do we attract more people of color into the profession? That's a good question because I have the good fortune or some days not so good. I teach in the library school at Rutgers, but I also work part-time in the library. And one of my goals has been for years, the library's student staff, work-study staff, are mostly of color. They're, they're kids that qualify for work-study. So how can we use them working in our library to recruit them to want to become librarians? And you know what? If you look at all of our libraries, who are the pages that work in our libraries? You know, very often they're the underrepresented groups. So how can we see our own organizations as great recruitment tools? You know, that they're not just coming to work. They're learning to love what a library can be and what a library can do. Now, there's no question that it's alienating to go into a profession that doesn't look like you. Uh, my husband was not only the dean of our school, but then he was the vice chancellor for diversity at Rutgers and has worked very closely with ALA on diversity issues. And I will tell you, his studies have shown our numbers over, we're, we're now 30 years into the Spectrum Scholarship Program. It's a great program to, to try to recruit more minorities. Our overall numbers are not going up. And I think that's a real crisis. I could have gotten more into that in my talk, but I didn't have two days or three days to talk about everything. But, you know, the representation in the in our profession has to reflect our community. And I think we need to be much more creative and figure out ways to do that. Now, some people will give you the excuse as well. It doesn't pay enough. It doesn't do this and doesn't do that. But I think we need to look at it differently. What does it do? So to tell you something that happened at Rutgers that was, unfortunately, we're not recruiting right now, but we changed our job descriptions after we started using Harwood at the library, at the, at the Rutgers University Library, to focus more on engagement. And we hired, with those new job descriptions, three people of color after we had zero, at least from underrepresented minorities. We have a, a large Asian population. Three people of color. So, just even looking at something so, you know, basic as what are you saying in your job description? Also, how are you recruiting? 
we actually went after minorities when we did those recruitments. It takes a lot more effort, but identify and look for people. They're out there, but they're not going to come to your library if you sit back and don't make any attempts to make them feel welcome and to bring them in. And once they're in, I will tell you, it is really important to give people, once they're in the door, figure out how to make them feel more included once they're in the room, because that aspect, I think we don't pay enough attention to. So one of the community conversations we had in ALA was over how do we move forward on diversity. And my group that I um, moderated said this very thing, people come into the profession, but they leave it. So we may be bringing them in the door, but they're going out the back door. And the reason they are is because we have to figure out how to be more welcome. And this gets back to that idea of the library faith. We think we do it right, but we need a fresh picture to think about what what could we do differently to make ourselves more welcome to people in the community who don't look like this and people who might become part of our profession. In talking about that also, how do we do this now in light of the times we're living in, both politically and dealing with the outbreak and, and the pandemic? I mean, because now that's added two extra layers or, yeah. or buffers or, or barriers to, to making this happen. Now, the pandemic hopefully will not be here forever. And the political climate in this country, regardless of where you stand politically, will not last forever. This is I'm hoping this is a cyclical thing like it usually is. So how do we right now double down and try to still recruit and to attract people of color into the profession? Because we've done episodes here with uh, librarians of color talking about their experiences, and some of the experiences are quite shocking. Well, first of all, I love that you're using the L word, listening, because I think that this is a really awkward topic for all of us. I am sitting on the library's new diversity committee, and I will tell you, there is a lot of rage out there um, by minorities who are on our staff. Unfortunately, they're not at the professional level, enough of them, but they feel discriminated against in many ways. But part of it is they feel that they have no voice. Nobody listens to them. And going back to some of the things I talk about, we need to build trust. We need to build understanding. We need to have community conversations among our own to make people feel more welcome and to have people understand each other better. We really don't know each other all that well. Um, so, so that's a big deal. Um, the other thing is when you started talking about the crisis we're in, was it Rahm Emanuel who said, you know, never, uh, what was, I forget exactly how he said it, but take advantage of the crisis. You know, there's a lot we're not doing now, but a lot we could do. So we could have these dialogues. You have these wonderful tools. You can have dialogues. What if you had a dialogue that you broadcast and brought people in? And You know, we have to make people feel comfortable, but we also want them to be heard. So just thinking creatively, how can we use this moment, take advantage of this moment? Because I will tell you, 
everything I'm hearing and experiencing, people are so isolated. They can't wait for an opportunity to get involved and to participate or be heard or whatever. So rather than me telling you ideas of what you could do is get together with those in your community and come up with some brainstormed ideas and see what they think. And, you know, people say to me a lot, but we don't have any money. (laughs) This doesn't take money. It takes intentionality. It takes will. Yes, it'd be nice to have some money too. But without money, we can still do so much because this is about relationship building, who we are, who we want to be. And you know what? That conversation is free, but we have to step forward and make it happen. Well, you're right. Having a conversation doesn't cost anything. So the only thing it could possibly cost if you are meeting in person is having a prepackaged sealed donut because <laughs> you can't just buy a box of donuts anymore and have those yeah. prepackaged, you know, f- food items where you can sit around a table and you can have a discussion. Of course, you're socially distancing and wearing your mask, but you can still have these conversations because it doesn't, I mean, even if you do it over something like this with Zoom. Yes, the library already has that subscription to Zoom. If you invite people who are uh, people who are leaders in the community or just average individual people who want to just voice their concerns or give ideas to how libraries can be more inclusive or libraries can engage or libraries can go out into the community and do these things that maybe we're not catching because you know maybe we don't have that, that level of interaction with, with certain segments of the population. It really doesn't cost so- a thing. The word can, what's that can do spirit, we can do it. You know, there's just an amazing amount of creative things. So let me tell you just one thing that happened in our library recently. This is like such a no brainer. So when we used to have meetings, what did we do before the meeting and after the meeting? We talked to each other. We caught up with friends, right? We got there a little early. We stayed a little later. So now before we have our monthly librarian meetings, we're opening the Zoom room a half hour early. And it is wonderful. All of a sudden, it's like, you know, we can talk to each other and exchange, just chit chat again, you know, that watercolor stuff we used to do. So how do we make this medium be a little bit more friendly? Do you have any um, ideas on what libraries could do to be more diverse in their programming? Because this is a great time for us to kind of reach out to folks that that may be able to get access to the library a little bit easier. You bet. So last night I was part of a free speech discussion on campus and they had, uh, there were two Latinos, an African-American and me. I was like blown away because, you know, one of the Latinos went to Harvard. She is one of the experts in free speech in the country and works for Penn American Center in New York. Um, One of the other participants lived in Philadelphia and the artist who was African-American and whose art has been censored lives in Brooklyn. So here we were in New Jersey having this conversation and it was totally diverse. We just did a program at the library, um, through the library we sponsored, um, using the film Rigged, the voter uh, suppression playbook. 
this was a film that was supposed to air at ALA. And I saw the article about it not airing. And I contacted the producer and said, well, would you be interested in airing it at Rutgers? And he said, absolutely. So now he's airing it at libraries all around the country. So I found a panel. And I wanted to make sure the panel was diverse, but it was really difficult to build because every person of color I contacted had a very good reason they couldn't do it that night. And so I ended up with a white panel. So what was I going to do? And they said, oh, we can't have more speakers. Well, I said, tough. We are going to, and I'm going to find. And I found a Latina and an African-American. And let me tell you, having them present on a panel of five made all the difference in the world. It was really impressive to have all these different viewpoints. And they brought home issues that the others didn't bring home, even though some of them were experts on voter suppression. So it won't only, it's, it's sometimes you have to work a whole lot harder. And let me tell you, I was, I couldn't go to sleep at night because I thought, who am I going to get? And you want to make it a well-rounded panel, but I did finally succeed. But it also is amazing when you bring these voices in, what a different experience it is. So it's worth the effort. I guess that's the idea, right, Nancy? So what we were talking about is before, and I think it's fantastic, is we're so used to, and excuse the term jamming, but jamming the library down everybody's like throat, like just putting <laughs> the library out there, right? And and not push, like, push, push. Like, we've, all, we've always talked about that for decades and probably more than that. You know, how can the library basically jam its information more in front of people? And the idea that you're coming up with and, and really instituting is just allow the library to be among the people and not yeah. pushing any of it. You know, you'll push it on its own as you get engaged with your community. You know, that's right. With the people. There's a new book that came out by the, the president of the Kettering Foundation called With the People. And it's all about this idea of being with the people, this idea of we're all citizens. You know, there's no expert in the room. We're all citizens. This is about all of us. You know, so often what libraries do for programming is have the expert at the front of the room. So one of my real beefs is we have, when we go to a program at the library, all we see is the back of our neighbor's heads. So we don't even know who's in the room because... We're looking at the expert rather than sitting in a circle. So I tried to have a few people sitting in circles in my slides because you have a different conversation when you're sitting in a circle. And actually on Zoom, when everybody's there, you know, I also teach and I teach, well, I don't do enough teaching synchronously. I do it mostly asynchronous. But when we all get on together, everybody's equal. You know, you only get your box unless you have the, the speaker view. But if you do the gallery view, we're all equal, and it's really interesting. And you break into small groups. I do a whole lot of this dialogue stuff where we break into small groups. We might have five people. And it's wonderful to have these intimate conversations that you can have in this environment with people that are, you know, I just did the U.S.-Russia dialogue, which I'm part of internationally that I've been doing for four years. Uh, sorry, the U.S.-Russia library dialogue. We met two weeks ago. We were supposed to meet in Siberia, but we met on Zoom. And we had people from as far away as eastern Siberia to Portland. So 6 a.m. in the morning, midnight in Siberia, right? All working together with that view, the gallery view. 
And the only thing that was difficult was seeing their name in Cyrillic versus transliterated. So, you know, the language, and you know that Zoom also has an interpreting capability. You can have channels for different languages. It worked magnificently. And it didn't cost us anything, so which is amazing because pretty expensive to bring a delegation of 10 people to Siberia, I will tell you. So, so you can do amazing things with this technology right now that you couldn't do before. Nancy, can you go through some of the resources you talked about during your discussion? You mentioned a couple of websites and places that folks could go. I can. It's probably easier for me to send you the links because – but the um, Libraries Transform Communities – site that ALA has, has just an, a rich array of content. It's got webinars, it's got uh, guides, it's got interviews, it's got stories, it's got just wonderful step-by-step guides on how to use a lot of these tools. Um, so that's very helpful. Um, this group that we have, this membership initiative group in ALA, we just sit in a circle and talk to each other. And every time we meet, we have a different group of people. There's a lot of regulars, but there's a lot of new people. And it's so rich just to hear how people are doing this work and what they're getting into. And you know, just like anything else we do professionally, our conferences are ways to find out best practices, good practices, new ideas. But it's really encouraging because most of the people who do this work also are trained to facilitate dialogue. So they know how to be in a room and get the room to come together. You know, I don't know about you, but I go to some meetings where it is the worst waste of my time to be in the meeting because we don't <laughs> do anything. Exactly. Nothing happens, right? So, but when you work with people who are so skilled um, and these techniques, uh, it's really cool because you see how they can make something happen in a little bit of time. So the other group that I mentioned was the National Coalition on Dialogue and Deliberation. They have some terrific resources. Everything is free. You can become a member, and I encourage people to do so. But ALA's resources are free, and so are uh, NCDD is what we call it for short. But I would also encourage you to showcase what's going on on Long Island and create a group on Long Island that's interested in this so they can talk together. You know, you don't have to go to ALA to do it. It's just to have your local groups that not just people who are doing it, people who want to do it, who want to learn more. It's a great way to mentor each other. And attract people who may not have done it before. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, I mean, did I know what I was doing when I got into this? No. You know, it's not something you go into fully aware of all the techniques and all. It's, you know, so much of librarianship is very detailed work. This is how you do it. Uh, there's some guidance on how to do this, but this is much more free for all. Some people aren't that comfortable with that open-endedness of it, but it can, you know, if you give yourself a chance, just sort of step in the water a few, few baby steps at a time. I think it'll give you a great uh, a moment to really experience something about the work we do differently. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for being part of this conference and for speaking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having
Okay, we're back for another session for the Long Island Library Resources Council Conference on Libraries in the Future. And we have with us V. Elaine Gross, who's the president of Erase Racism. It's based here on Long Island. One thing that was an eye-opener for me, just from the word go, listening to your presentation, it immediately brought me to my days when I worked at another library and when I would work with a colleague of mine who now is a really good friend of mine who also is a person of color. And we were talking about things that I saw, and then she would explain it from her perspective. And we would have this back-and-forth dialogue, and and she's really good about that. And I learned a lot about myself, and I learned a lot about how my perspective is different than the perspective from a person of color. And it allows me now to see that perspective before there's ever an interaction. Well, we were talking about implicit bias, make a distinction between that and racism. Mm -hmm. And in the presentation, I also talked about the different kinds of racism, both individual and systemic. And so uh, just a couple of comments. First of all, I would say that people of color is, is almost too large of a category to talk about there being any kind of one thing, except when you're saying that, well, there is definitely a generalized difference between white people and the privilege that they get and people of color in general. But as we saw from the Newsday housing investigation, exactly how that plays out is different based on the group. So 19% of the Asians who were uh, testers for Newsday were discriminated against 39% of the Hispanics and 49% of the Black testers were discriminated against. So that's just one kind of a backdrop for us to keep in mind. And then in terms of perspectives, yes, there are differences. And that came out a little bit in the implicit bias uh, discussion that we had during the, the conference. Implicit bias and especially the microaggressions. I'll just use one that's really in in the news right now. If you know the history, the extent of the anti-Black history embedded in our government and what the government has done and continues to do, and then specifically when you see what has happened, not just with George Floyd and, you know, Breonna Taylor, but if you go back all of those incidents for a black person, if somebody does not recognize why it's important to say black lives matter, it's like you can't understand it at all. Because again and again and again and again, it's been demonstrated that black lives don't matter to the extent of black people being shot down in the street, killed in the street, and nothing happens no accountability. That's like the most egregious (laughs) example of how, in terms of white society, Black lives don't matter. Um, So there can be a very different um, way of looking at that. If you're not aware of that history, and if you're not the one whose lives have been put in jeopardy, if you're not the mother with the black children who are going to be out on the streets and you're scared to death, you it's very hard for you to fully appreciate how significant it is 
that even in the midst of all of this, you find out that there are people making excuses, you know, making excuses for the police's actions and people basically saying, letting them walk. You know, you have to look through a racial equity lens and then you see the world differently. If you don't do that, then there's a lot that's going to go by you. (laughs) Well, we certainly have so much separation. You know, I, I showed that we are among the most racially segregated metro region in the country. You know, you don't want to be first. <laughs> right, not <laughs> in that category, that category, no. <laughs> and, and we are, we're up there. And so people don't have a lot of interactions with people that are not like themselves. We live in different places. For the most part, our children go to school with other children that are like themselves. You know, we did some research, a 12-year period between 2004 and 2016, and uh, we started with five intensely segregated school districts. That's 90 to 100% non-white, and we ended with 11 intensely segregated districts. So we're not getting better. We're getting worse. And so not only do the adults not have interaction but we're raising a bunch of children that don't have interaction. So that means that there's the other. And that's for, and I'm saying that for everybody, for people of color, the other is, would be white people. For white people, the other would be those people of color that they don't have contact with. And so with that, and with the messages you get from the media and what you see in the news, there are, there are a lot of reasons why people would be anxious or suspicious or worse when you are coming into contact with people that don't look like you. And so that means there needs to be an added consciousness and added attention to, you know, like where you say to yourself, okay, I see this person. Let me see how, how things go. I'm not going to prejudge <laughs> mm-hmm. what's going to happen. You know, there they are. Here I am. We're going to come in contact with each other and let's try to keep it open and let's try to keep it engaging. That's a conscious effort. And especially if people are not aware of their own implicit bias, they're not conscious that they've taken in it. And that's everybody. All of us have taken in all of the messages that we get every day about groups of people. And so if you're not even conscious and not trying to de-bias, then there won't be any change. There won't be change because you'll, you know, you'll respond in a way that is typical, if you will, that reflects all of those biases and prejudices that you've just gotten from the air. And that's the way it will be. So it is, it's very sad. And, you know, we, of course, hope that more and more people get educated so that that the level of comfort can be increased and their consciousness can be raised to the point that they catch themselves. Doesn't mean that you'll never say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or respond in the wrong way. It just means that you're going to be conscious and sometimes you catch yourself and you say, oh, why, why was I so, you know, whatever. Why was I so upset? Why was I so not friendly? Why was I so you know, whatever it is, suspicious. 
Elaine, obviously there's a, I mean, what I get from all this is there, there's a big systemic issue that folks come in a library, anybody comes in a library and has to look for the person that they think will treat them correctly or anywhere, Home Depot, it doesn't matter where you are. That's the, that's the big issue. And, and how, I would love your opinion on how we get libraries to open up a dialogue and a discussion about that issue, because unless we educate and talk to the folks that work there, in every institution, but certainly we can start it in libraries about how they should be treating everyone and how people should feel comfortable to come up to them no matter what color uh, or race you are. Um, how do we start that inside from the staff perspective and then maybe break it out into the community? Right? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, different libraries have different professional development activities, you know, and, and um, certainly they could come to Erase Racism and ask us about the kinds of workshops we do, it needs to be considered a requirement of professional development for staff. It needs to be, it needs to have that level of attention. And I think that sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there are other things that people are thinking about. And so these issues are not the ones that get the attention. I agree. And, you know, Chris and I have run many, many different organizations in the past. And it's it's obviously an uncomfortable topic. And that can't stop us from having that conversation, though, because it needs to be discussed. If it's not talked about, the default is that not everybody gets treated the same. And that's mm -hmm. never going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the issue is that people don't believe that. You see, where people start is... Sometimes they'll talk about a little bit of history and they'll say, well, yeah, there was an issue, but we're past that now. You know, we don't, I can't tell you the number of people who have told me there is no housing discrimination anymore, Elaine. That was something that happened back before the 60s. That's not something that happens now. And of course, I know that's not true <laughs> from our own work. And the wonderful gift <laughs> that Newsday gave us is that anyone who is, you know, have half a brain <laughs> should know now that, yes, there is housing discrimination. It's continuing. And if we manage to catch that many people, just think of all the other things that have gone on that didn't get caught. Because, you know, in these kind of private interactions, you don't know. You don't know what's going on. People don't know they've been discriminated against. And in many cases, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but in many cases, depending on their upbringing, people may not even know that they have that racist side, right? Well, the people who are doing the discrimination, there may be some implicit bias that's happening, but they are, you know, like any other profession where you're where you get a license. And, you know, you have a certain even superficial knowledge of what the laws are and what you can do, and you can't do what, et cetera. Then if you intentionally do that anyway, then I would say, you, you know, you know what you're doing. That's right. You know what you're doing and you're doing it anyway. And so I don't buy that people discriminated accidentally. Can you tell us a bit more about your organization, Erase Racism, and, and kind of how it, how it began and what the plans are to grow it? And, mm -hmm. and the workshops you guys offer as well, please. 
Sure. Well, Erase Racism started in 2001. I'm the founder and president of the organization. And initially, we were a project of the Long Island Community Foundation. Uh, you know, I had a desk <laughs> and um, in the foundation. And we our focus pretty quickly sharpened on identifying and addressing institutional and structural racism. So in other words, we weren't going to be a direct service agency. You know, you have a problem, you come to us, we'll help you, the individual. We were going to be an organization that was looking at laws and policies and practices, those things that capture whole populations of people. And what can we do to change that? And so housing became, you know, moved to the top of our list uh, because we saw that where people live impacts so much of their life, uh, including what schools their children get to go to. Uh, also, what kind of, um, you know, what's in their community? Do they have a bank? Do they have a grocery store? I mean, you know, there, there's some basic things that really are influenced by where you live. So we focused on housing from the beginning. We always start with research because we want to know what what's really the situation, what we're dealing with. So we started with some research and that's when we began to really unravel the, um, the extent to which the federal government's actions starting in the 1930s uh, and then up till today, how they have helped to shape what Long Island is today. But also, and I say up to today, because just a matter of weeks ago, the HUD administration, the, under the Trump administration, they stopped two critical fair housing rules. One was you know, discontinued. One had to do with affirmatively furthering fair housing, and the other had to do with disparate impact. So the AFFH, Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing, came out of the Fair Housing Act, and it basically said, we're not just talking about waiting until someone is discriminated against and then saying to that person, okay, you have a right to try to seek some redress. You know, you could go to a, an office and file a complaint. You could go to the court and, and file a lawsuit. You have a right to do that. Um, of course, it was really, it's a little like a slap in the face because the person that's discriminated against don't really know that they've been discriminated against. That's what happened in the Newsday investigation. But also, it assumes that they have the wherewithal when really what they're trying to do is to find housing. <laughs> that they have the wherewithal to say, oh, I've been discriminated against. Oh, well, let me go do this. Let me fill that out. Let me do that. You know, I'll take time off of my looking for a house and my, you know, working and everything else I'm doing and try to take this other path to deal with housing discrimination. But it did give with that, with the Fair Housing Act, it gave groups like ours the ability using testers to root out the discrimination on behalf of, if you will, people who would be victims. And so, you know, that became uh, an important work. But then we also said, 
okay, that's not the only thing. The enforcement of fair housing is, is good. But are there some loopholes now in the law? One big loophole is source of income discrimination. So people can have legal sources of income. They could be various government benefits. It could be uh, alimony payments. It could be uh, Section 8 certificates, veterans benefits, disability benefits, non-wage legal (laughs) sources of income. Um, What was happening is the the managers of of buildings would say, oh, no, we we don't take that. They would only accept your W, whatever it is, W2, W4, whatever it is that says I got paid. This is how much I got paid. They wouldn't accept the other income that you have. And sometimes they were just doing that as an excuse. They wanted to discriminate based on some other protected class like race. Um, Or they wanted to discriminate based on family composition. And sometimes it was just outright, I don't want to take what you have, you know. So we were able to get local county fair housing statutes change to include legal source of income. And then we got the state human rights law changed. Quite frankly, we realized that getting it changed at the county level, we realized after the fact, wasn't enough, that the counties weren't really doing much enforcement anyway, and that it would be better to get that change at the state level. So we organized a statewide coalition. We started in 2016. We finally got the amendment last year in 2019. So we now have source of income protected protection throughout the state, uh, which is great. So that's just a for instance in terms of how we start with the research. We figure out what could be intervention strategies. You know, sometimes step, step one is not necessarily the best, you know, you learn, uh, but it gave us the practice. And then we went on and made that change at the state level, uh, which is better. And um, the fair housing enforcement, you just have to keep at it. There is new legislation now. Uh, So there is some, you know, there is movement. Uh, There's a lot more that needs to be done, but there are a variety of things that are, that are happening that would be um, moving us in the right direction. And then the other area I'll just mention is public school education, which is uh, more recent uh, for us. But we, uh, as I showed, you know, we did our research on that too, and, you know, understood more what the situation here is with the schools. And uh, so we have organized a public school education equity Um, working group made up of educators mostly with some others. And we also have a student task force, high school students, and we've been doing some organizing with parents. So all three of those constituencies are, we feel, very critical to any change in the schools. And the, the New York State Department of Education actually has a very good Uh, document on its website about culturally responsive sustaining education, a framework for it. Um, So it is, it's getting more traction, but our 
our students are definitely out ahead of the game. And then we had this delegation, Long Island delegation that went of educators that went to this conference, or I should say this time it was virtual, but we've taken them to the conference in New York City in the past. Uh, the Roush Foundation has supported that um, and paid for the registration fees. So there are some educators on Long Island who have been kind of immersed in where we should be headed in public school education. And so, you know, they're bringing that back. We're scheduling a meeting now to follow up with them. So now that you came back and you're back in school, how are you uh, implementing this? So our work is both, you know, sometimes there's a lawsuit, as was the case around rentals uh, in terms of discrimination. Sometimes we're working in collaboration with people. Uh, sometimes it's just local to Long Island. Sometimes it's statewide. We organized, we tried to get people to send in comments to HUD when they first proposed these new rules. And that started back in 2019 and then in 2020. And of course, we submitted our own comments, as did, you know, tens of thousands of people from across the country. And then just as I said, they decided they were going to go with their uh, with their decision, what they wanted to do, which is to stop trying to roll back, trying to dismantle fair housing in the country. And so they rolled back those two uh, Obama era guidances, which basically says, look, we're not just going to have the rule on the books. We're really going to implement it and make sure we're, we're taking an active role it's, it's a little discouraging, <laughs> to say the least. I uh, can't say we're making headway on the national level. We're, we're not. Um, you know, we're just trying to hold back as much as we can. But um, there's some opportunity at the state level and there's some opportunities locally uh, to make change. And so that's what we're working on. Elaine, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think it's personally nice to get here and, uh, and to have you on our show. Can you tell our listeners um, where they can get in touch with you? Sure. So our website is Erase Racism NY. That's all one word, no spaces. E-R-A-S-E-R-A-C-I-S-M-N-Y dot O-R-G dot org. And they can also follow us on social media and all of that information is on the website. And they can make a contribution if they would like. <laughs> I'm just going to ask if there was a donation path there. Yeah, that's great. Yep. Okay, well, it's great having you, having you uh, stop in to talk to us about all this information. And we will link to all of this stuff on our website. So everybody who's interested to get in touch with you can get in touch with you. So thank you again, Violaine Gross, You're for welcome. coming on with us today. You're very welcome. Take thank care. You. Okay, we're back at the conference. We're speaking with Ryan Dowd, who is the author of The Librarian's Guide to Homelessness. 
you just did an amazing presentation and we were just crushing on how amazing your PowerPoint is with a green screen and how you're kind of like doing this webinar almost. It's fascinating and we could talk about that for hours. We want to talk about homelesslibrary.com and your book. And what fascinated me was your strategy for homeless in the library talking about brain chemistry. So first, why don't you tell us about your organization? So we train organizations primarily libraries, but also uh, police and healthcare and nonprofits and pretty much anybody else who wants to, to listen on how to compassionately and effectively manage problematic behavior from troubled individuals. So if you've got individuals struggling with trauma or mental health issues or substance abuse issues, oftentimes they have a harder time struggling to follow the rules. And what we naturally do is we punish them. We kick them out of the library. We kick them out of the homeless shelter. We arrest them or whatever. And the behavior really comes out of their, their vulnerability, comes out of the ways that they're, literally their brain might even be damaged, whether it's traumatic brain injury or whatnot. And so what we try to train people how to do is how to manage that behavior in a way that's far more effective than simply kicking everybody out, but also dramatically more compassionate when you're dealing with vulnerable people. What you were talking about with brain chemistry and, and tactics with regard to, um, to assisting homeless when they're in your facility because most people take that you have to get out and we're going to ban you and you talked about the the um the, how the brain chemistry reacts to that that tactic versus being more compassionate and trying to engage and make eye contact and, and all that other stuff can you explain briefly you know what happens there there are three really good neurochemicals that help people to follow the rules and play nice. And there's one neurochemical that makes matters worse. And the good ones are serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin. And they basically lower a person's aggression, lower their impulsivity, and increase their empathy. And they're caused by tiny little things like handshakes and eye contact and keeping things consistent over time and being treated like a social equal. All these things release brain chemicals that lowers a person's aggression, lowers their impulsivity, and increases their empathy. On the flip side is cortisol. Cortisol actually increases a person's aggression and it's caused by stress. So when I yell at you because you broke a rule and I stress you out, your brain is going to release a neurochemical that's going to increase your aggression. And so once you understand how neurochemicals work, you can use them to help people follow the rules, again, in a way that's far more effective than simply punishing people and dramatically more compassionate. You know, in, in my previous life, I worked in the courts and they trained us to do these kinds of things too. And even in terms of the, the stance you were talking about, being at that 15 degrees, um, they taught us in the courts to do that also because if he does push you, your chances of you falling backwards are less because you're you're supporting your, your weight differently. Yeah, that's just a side benefit. The fact that uh, it's, it's more of like, it's also a tactical stance that police use because it's easier to defend yourself. That's not why I teach it, but but it's it's kind of a nice bonus that it's also that. But it's it's also it's really really good at de-escalating conflict. Yeah, I'm just thinking because we've worked in libraries for a long time, and um, the way that you train the folks today on how to handle someone um, who might be sleeping in the library or something like that, I thought was was absolutely perfect. Like going from the the way that we've uh, seen people do it in the past to the way that you can approach it just by using um, different words, different uh, posture, different uh, you know countenance on your face. Um, is is absolutely great. I think every library in school should actually uh, should take this kind of course. I agree. Libraries, we, we have, we've talked about yeah. this in previous episodes, that library schools are really good at teaching certain things, but there's a lot of stuff that they kind of need to step it up a little bit and teach. And this is really one of them because you have to, when people come in your building, look, it's a public building and you know, you're going to get everyone who can basically walk, drive, fly, or crawl into the building. 
So you have to be able and you have to be able and have this this toolkit in your tool bag to be able to deal with different types of people to come in, whether they're good people or they're people that are disruptive or people that are loud or people that are too quiet or people who aren't following the rules. There's all these different facets of society that come into your building and having training on how to engage homeless people and almost make them, like you were saying, to make them just follow the rules because they're entitled to be in the building. It helps a lot more than just taking an authoritative stance every single time they come in and, and kind of just glaring at them, like you were saying in your presentation, and sending that negative message to them. Yeah. So when I when I first started doing this, what I realized pretty quickly is that probably the number one profession for working with homeless individuals is people who work at homeless shelters. I mean, 100% of the people we work with are homeless and struggling with various issues. But probably a close second uh, is libraries. Libraries deal with, as you kind of alluded to, the, the full gamut of humanity and a, a higher percentage of homeless folks and individuals struggling with mental health or substance abuse issues or trauma, much higher percentage than pretty much any other profession deals with with maybe the exception of like nursing, emergency room nursing, and maybe police officers. But, but but libraries are right up there. And the difference is that librarians, as you alluded to, they just, as a general rule, don't get the training on how to work with somebody who's paranoid schizophrenic or someone who's struggling with a, a meth addiction. And so I don't know, probably the, the 15th time somebody told me, oh my gosh, I wish they had taught me this in library school. We made a new policy that if any library school instructor reach out, reaches out to us, we will let them use our course in their class completely for free so that people cannot say that they got out of library school not learning how to do this stuff. That's an amazing offer. You know, by having your course, I mean, you're also lowering the anxiety of the staff too and of administration because now the staff appropriately, they know how to deal with that. That's gonna for me. That's one of the most fun things is when I get an email from somebody and they say, you know, I was on the verge of quitting it, quitting because I just I couldn't take another person yelling at me. And then you taught me some tools, and oh my gosh, I can actually stay in the profession now. And that's just, I mean, that's really exciting when when someone feels the confidence to to do their job in a way that they didn't before. Right, and one of the major points I guess would be that you do it across the whole organization because what it's become over the years is, you know, Chris and Bob. Well, Chris and Bob can deal with this, but Chris and Bob aren't here right now because it's Sunday at three o'clock and so-and-so is back again. And what do we do? And sometimes, you know, administration will say, well, call Chris or Bob. And that doesn't really help because what are we going to do over the phone? Um, So really doing the training across the organization, right down to the pages and to the and to the, uh, you know, the, the library trainees that you may have working for you, everybody, right, down to the, you know, to the maintenance worker should be shown um, how to deal with someone that, that may be caught in a position where they need, you know, some guidance and, and they need to be kind of brought through a situation. Yeah, the most successful libraries are the ones where everybody does this. Um, Houston Public Library, which was one of the first libraries to adopt this, they immediately made 550 staff go through this. And they, they reported back to me that they saw problematic behavior go down 80%, not 100%. But 80% is pretty good. You know what? It enables, Chris, I'm sure you'll agree, it enables the staff to handle things appropriately and not guess. Like, I don't know what to do if so-and-so shows up. I hope he doesn't come in on my shift. And just that, gee, you know what? The last time he was here, he caused the problem. It wasn't handled because so-and-so wasn't here. I hope he doesn't come back. Just that anxiety about being in the workplace or having to, I mean, we've seen it in different organizations where people have to go and Go to like a safe place, like a staff room or something like that, because so-and-so is in the building and boy, they've harassed other people in the past. Uh, so this really, this really helps a lot. With that. Yeah, I'm a big believer in all the staff should be trained because what a lot of particularly bigger libraries do is they say, well, that's the security guards problem. That's not the, the, the 
library staff per se's problem. And I think that's a big mistake because when the library staff can handle it, as you alluded to, what do you do if the security guard's not there? What do you do if the security guard's a jerk and actually makes things worse? I'm a big believer in that library staff should be trained to, to deal with people effectively and security guards are a last resort. Because yeah, they'll never be where they're supposed, not supposed to be, but where they're needed. They're going to be in the parking lot doing rounds when somebody flips out in the yeah. basement. So. Right. I mean, and this is this is a great example of de-escalation. I mean, the whole process of what you're talking about is de-escalation, which is the key to dealing with any difficult person, whether it's whether it's somebody who's homeless or you just get an, an angry patron or you you get an angry even an angry child. De-escalation is, is the key to it. And actually, one of the, the security guards we have here at our library is is a pro at de-escalation. I, I bow to him every time I see him deal with somebody who, you know, is is really disruptive. And he gets them to the point where he's he's having them eat out of his hand, and I'm like, Richie, how did you do that? He goes, You just talk to people, and you learn about them, and you you know, and when they come in again, you learn their name, and you make eye contact, and when you know their name, yes, I'm gonna have to talk to them for 45 minutes because they're you know they're they're needy in that respect, but if that's the price that I have to pay in order to keep the peace in the building, I'll do it. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I'm gonna I'm gonna. Snip, cut that out of your podcast and use that in my marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how many times people they'll finish my training and they'll go, you know, this wasn't really about homelessness. I'm like, no kidding. But if I called it how to work with anybody, nobody would show up. So, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, what's your background? So when I was 13, I was in a Sunday school class and they passed around a sign-up sheet to volunteer at the local homeless shelter. I did not know what the local homeless shelter was called. I knew nothing about homeless shelters. All I did know was that when I looked at the sign-up sheet, every single girl from Sunday school class had signed up and none of the boys. And the, that was that was good odds uh, as a you know scrawny little 13-year-old. So literally the first time I went to a homeless shelter, I was trying to get a date. But when I got there, it was just so different from my kind of suburban middle-class upbringing. And, you know, it was kind of that, that stereotypical awakening where, wow, that guy doesn't have all his teeth and that person over there doesn't smell so good. And the other person in the corner is talking to himself. And it really just expanded my world within minutes. And I didn't know why at the time, but I really liked it there. And no 13-year-old can admit that he likes hanging out at the local homeless shelter. But that's what I did. I continued volunteering in junior high, high school, and college. And then I joined the staff as a senior in college, uh, worked there all through the ending college, through law school, took the bar exam, came back and became executive director. So um, this is more or less all I've ever done. That's an amazing story. Well, you know, and one thing, you know, just talking about homeless in the building, homeless are allowed to be there. A lot of people, you know, the second somebody comes in who's homeless, Say, well, well, we have to call the police. Well, no, he's, he's allowed to be here. And not every homeless person is angry or yeah. dangerous or threat to other people. They just want a place to stay. And the vast majority of people experiencing homelessness are lovely, great human people like that don't want to cause problems. Um, but anybody treated poorly tends to not respond as well as they would have if they were treated well. And so homeless individual comes into a library, staff is afraid, and they don't handle it well, and they escalate a situation where there, what, there didn't need to be a problem there, but the fear caused the library staff to, to do some stupid stuff, like calling the police on somebody who did nothing more than walk into a library. And it's not just, I mean, I'm picking on the staff, but uh, there's a library about 20 miles from my house where I did a training for them, they asked, you know, what do we do when the patrons call the police every single time a homeless person walks into our library? I'm like, 
start by apologizing to the homeless patrons that every single time they walk into a library, the police are are called on them by the other patrons. Well, that's a rough thing to take care of. I never even thought of that. That's that's an interesting twist. So you had talked in your presentation about how um, the frontal cortex of people who are who experience trauma gets damaged. Can you explain that to us for a second? Yeah. So. Uh, there's two parts of the brain that are really relevant for this. The, the prefrontal cortex, which allows you to think calm, slow, deep thoughts, and the amygdala, which is your fight or flight mechanism. And basically what happens is when someone's experienced a lot of trauma, particularly childhood trauma, it damages the prefrontal cortex and it amps up the amygdala, meaning they have a harder time thinking calm, slow, deep thoughts, but their brain automatically goes into fight or flight mode. And so there's some things that happen, like uh, they're more likely to what's called misperceived threat stimuli, which just means they overreact more. And they have a harder time calming themselves down because the part of your brain that calms you down is the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that's been damaged by that trauma. And so generally speaking, people who've experienced trauma, they just they, they hop into fight or flight mode way faster and they stay there way longer. And that can be really challenging to, to work with somebody who's who's in fight or flight mode in a situation where people without trauma wouldn't be. It was very eye opening to me because you know you don't really take all these things into account when you when you're trying to assist a homeless person in one way, shape, or form, especially if they're angry. I always just dealt with the de escalation, but I had no idea about the brain chemistry. It was really an eye opener for me. Yeah, we're so we're just quick to call people jerks. You know, somebody misbehaves or, or they're rude or they're loud and we just call them a jerk. We don't realize there actually might be an underlying condition like trauma, like a traumatic brain injury, like a personality disorder, like schizophrenia or or on and on and on again. And that the 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 misbehavior is a manifestation of the issue the person is struggling with, not a manifestation of the fact that they're a jerk. Ryan, how long have you been doing this? You said when did you start out? Started volunteering when I was 13, started um, working at the shelter when I was 21. I've been doing the training since 2016, so about four years now. Well, this has been great. Yep. I'm really glad you were able to come on with us and spend some time yeah, with us to too. talk about this. So uh, how can anybody reach you? Is it homelesslibrary.com slash email? Homeless yep. Home well, just homelesslibrary.com is a real good start. Uh, you can sign up. We've got a weekly email that, that's completely free that teaches people these tips on how to do it. And then also, if you're interested in our full training, we let one person per library do a free trial of all of our trainings. Uh, and if you like it, great. You can uh, you can purchase it for the rest of your staff. If you don't like it, it costs you nothing. Absolutely. That's great. So, Ryan Dowd, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you. You guys are great. Thanks. Nice to meet you, Ryan. Okay, we're back for the one last segment for the uh, Lorick Libraries and the Future. This is their 29th annual, and this is the fourth one we've attended. And we want to actually thank Lorick for having us back. We actually have three members of Lorick here who really kicked butt and got this presentation going. Obviously, we have Tim Spindler, who is the director of Lorick. And we have Sally Stiglitz, who people know from being on the podcast a bunch of different times. You know, she works over at Lorick. And Alicia Cerrone. So we were just chatting off mic before about what it takes to pull off a, a conference like this because usually they do it in a physical room and people come and there's catering and there's all these different struggles where doing it in a Zoom event I thought would actually be harder for a 
different for a couple of different reasons. But they were saying before that it really wasn't as bad. I mean, do you guys want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I I think overall it it isn't uh, because the tech issues in some respects were easier. Um, I think probably one thing that helps us a lot this time of year, year also after going through the pandemic when people used to Zoom. So I think our speakers were well-versed in it too. So they weren't struggling to get their presentations on, but we could also just queue up almost like it was a broadcast and, um, you know, each piece of the conference and, you know, smoothly go from one event to the other, whether it's the sponsorships, the welcome, and we didn't do a fully recorded thing either. Like I think ALA did for their annual, which I think still gives you some of the in-person feel, but you don't have to deal with some of the other technical issues or catering issues or venue issues that you might run into with um, yeah, it's a different set of challenges, right, Tim? The, the uh, events, uh, some of the event planning obstacles that we would have with simple things like setup and table placement and centerpieces and menus. Parking, parking signs. Parking. This, though you're still planning a conference, um, you can focus a lot more on the program and, and those components. And what was kind of cool too was your um, the way you handled the vendors too, because instead of having tables like we were talking off mic, where you know people would go to them or not go to them, now you actually they were front and center because they were the videos, they were the buffers or the the breaks in between speakers. So you had the audience that was a captive audience. So it actually, I think it may even be more effective for the vendors to or the sponsors to have their representation of their organizations that way, right? I absolutely agree. I think that the the tables are really nice. And of course, I don't think virtual can take over the in-person interactions. But like you said, it does give a captive audience. You know, they can really speak to our members and talk about why they support us and how they can help. Um, So I I appreciated that component, even though it was very different. Yeah, I I think it works out well, I think probably for the vendors. Um, I think the one issue is for me, is I just a couple of the vendors' videos were not as professional looking, but I think that's their choice in the end, anyways. I think that's overall, it's very easy to, to do that. And it's managed, you know, because we could create, have a video that was a five minute length, which was just for that break. And then when the video's done, you know, the break's over. I also think you made hit on a good point, Tim, when you mentioned that unlike ALA, it wasn't pre recorded presentations, which just mentally are a barrier for me that it's something you could watch at any time. It doesn't feel interactive, even if you're not interacting with people. It does feel interactive when you're watching a live presentation. When this is all over, you know, 30 years from now, I think this is a viable alternative or it can be an additive for people who want to do a presentation but yet can't make the conference. You can have a Zoom element where, let's say, I'm presenting in person, but Bob can't because he has responsibilities back at home with work. And yet we can still dedicate that hour and a half and do it half on Zoom and half in person. I mean, the the big narrative has been libraries have been projected five years into the future with everything that's happened. And I don't know why they're picking five as the number, but I don't – I think the bigger focus shouldn't be on, well, we've been brought five years into the future like we just jumped in the DeLorean. I think it's more along the lines of we were projected to now adapt, and that's what libraries do. Yeah. I mean, he's seeing that. I think my question will be is once um, we're past this, will this continue? Or I think, well, I think that's what everybody's asking, but <laughs> will people continue? I mean, the one thing is when in the past, when we've tried to do some online stuff before the pandemic, 
people would say they'd want it, but then we'd hold an event and we'd have a small number of people who would attend it. So they were saying they wanted it, but they wouldn't participate. I'm not interested in going backwards. I really think that there's just too much benefit to doing virtual meetings, even for our committees. We had uh, people who were reluctant to do committee meetings virtually. Yeah. Such a time saver, good for the environment. You know, you don't have to drive anywhere. Don't have to pick up the bagels. So. <laughs> and I think using this platform over a Zoom webinar is beneficial for us because it'll, you know, Zoom webinar is, doesn't allow for this face-to-face interaction. And I think that's what keeps people engaged is you can have this dialogue. You know, it's not limited to just a chat box. You can see the presenter. We did have a Q&A. They weren't pre-recorded. Um, so I think if, if we were to continue this way, I would think that our registration numbers continue to be high. Yeah, for our legislative breakfast that we had a week or two ago, we got some feedback that the directors who were involved and others felt that that video presence was important uh, with the legislators who were attending. Which I, I, thought, I was going to do a study on that, on the importance of seeing faces yeah. in a virtual environment. We're going to see that scholarship come out in a year or so. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Because it kind of goes back to what Ryan was talking about. Uh, you know, it's like what your brain is wired for is mm-hmm. different from what your real life experiences are. Mm-hmm. They may explain Zoom brain too, right? Yeah. That exists. That's yeah, real. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this. I mean, and I'm not asking for specifics, but from a fiscal standpoint, is this more cost effective than doing it in person? Yeah, this definitely. It, it's, I mean, we, we don't have a catering bill, even though we charged a lot less than we do for the normal conference. I haven't run the numbers, but I guess is it's overall, it's still a plus. It's much easier to run it like this. Less overhead means more people will come too because we charge less. Yeah. Right. We don't have to worry about the weather unless it knocks out the uh, Wi-Fi. Yeah, we don't have um, by uh, far the best attendance this year than we've had. Yeah, we had I think 160 register, and it looked like what was the maximum number who were in attendance? Maybe 139. Yeah. I saw 141 at one point. It's interesting that we didn't have that big a fall off. You know, we could have had one. 160 registered and 80 show up. That didn't happen. And they stayed. Yeah. I think with a paid event though, people stay. Um, With our free events, we're seeing more like 50 or 60% attendance rate based on registrations, but they're free events. So that's people aren't as committed. It's what Chris and I in the legal field, right? We call earnest money. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You have to charge a peppercorn. You have to have that, that financial investment in order to say, well, I paid for it. I might as well go to it. But yeah, the, um, again, again, the lineup this year was great. I think that the topics were extremely timely, especially when it came to Black Lives Matter. And I thought that was extremely timely. And Ryan was great as well. I mean, because again, that's an issue that it's, I don't want to say it's a dirty little secret in libraries, but it's something that, that doesn't want to be addressed as something that's proactive, it's always as something that's reactive when you're when you're dealing with homeless in your building. So I think the way he approaches it as an active, thought out process versus oh I have to deal with this again, you know, as, it's that of a nuisance. I thought was um, really really good. Oh, I was just wondering. I mean, when you say proactive, I never thought of it that way. I'm just trying to think. 
I, I think, because I think about the policies that libraries create for dealing with the homeless as being proactive, but are there other ways you're seeing it as being really reactive? Well, there may, past- there may be a proactive um, policy, but it's usually reactive by the staff. So in terms mm-hmm. of the homeless person comes in, the initial reaction is, oh, homeless guy's coming in. What are we going to do? And whether they know the policy or not, you're reacting as opposed to saying, okay, the homeless guy came in and he's causing a problem. I know what to do. And this is what I can do with all of these strategies to de-escalate the situation, um, calm everyone else that's around the homeless person. And, you know, they're entitled to be in the building. It's a public building. So mm-hmm. I think, yes, you can have proactive policy, but to have proactive librarians or people on the ground is a different story. And we're no. going to continue that conversation in, I believe, January. We have the Long Island Coalition for the Homeless coming in to, again, to further train our librarian professionals. That's awesome. Yeah. And then also having Nancy Chronic, former ALA president, she had a lot to share with regard to, you know, starting off with the political climate and talking about how it affected libraries and how we need to engage with the community and how we do that. And that pro again, being proactive versus reactive and, and not going out there and selling the library, but she kept saying, use that other L not super librarian on your chest, but the L of listening and listening to what your, what your community needs and addressing those needs and meeting those needs without going out there and trying to oversell yourself. And a lot of interesting feedback on a comment Nancy had made about uh, what she called edifice complex, which was being tied to the building. I don't know if you heard that, but yep. that our profession is tied to the idea of a building. And she said, can you think of any other professions where that's true? And I thought that was very interesting. I don't know if there are or there aren't, but people are obsessed with us as brick and mortar and books. And yeah. we haven't been that in a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's very true. And, you know, when people think of a library, they do think of a building. When, you know, especially in the, in the times we're in now, we have to think past the building. We have to think of new and innovative ways to reach people. And, and a lot of it has been virtual programming. Um, I know here at Sachem, we have an outreach department that doesn't have a physical space in the building other than office space because their space to work in is out in the field, in the schools, at the community drives, at the car washes, at the, at the street fairs. And now since they, they're not doing those things, they're actually going and reaching out to the uh, long-term care facilities and bringing materials and, and finding out what they need. So, you know, again, as libraries continue to evolve, they also adapt. And I think, most of, the, most of the libraries in Nassau and Suffolk County are adapting fairly well. And another yeah. funny point that Nancy brought up is she said her mom had no idea what she did for a living, basically. Isn't that true? <laughs> Isn't that true? I, my husband is like, well, he thinks I stamp books. <laughs> Although I remember, I always remember uh, when I was in middle school in a suburb of Milwaukee, there were, the Milwaukee Public Library had a, a TV commercial that said, had this jingle about libraries more than a book. <laughs> <laughs> and talk about all the services. It was sort of this really cheesy jingle, but it, it stood out in my memory since then. <laughs> we can buy that jingle. We might need it, right, for the future. <laughs> the jingle stay, right. You wouldn't want to hear me sing. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you it's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah. I'm already yeah. Googling it. <laughs> I, knew, I knew you would, Sally. So this so would have been good. probably like 79, 80. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I don't know if it could have been retained. It might be gone. 
Somebody recorded it. Somebody's in someone's basement. Yeah, somebody has it somewhere. (laughs) This conference was really good, and it was nice to see something. Not that it wasn't good before, because it was, but it's good to see that it didn't go away, or you didn't say, you know what, we're going to skip this year, or mothball it, or try to retool it into something else. Because I think it really, it really held up. Tim, kudos to you guys and Sally and. uh, Um, Certainly, Alicia, our whole team. Yeah, we have a good team. The committee never also considered canceling it. It was really just a question: when do we make the decision about going virtual or not? That was just the the real question. I want to give the committee credit for having that topic since last fall. That's not a new topic. That's not reactive. That was forward thinking. Yeah. Yeah, that was decided probably December last year. Yeah, it makes us look really prescient, I guess. Yeah, well, conversations around race and yeah. and inequality are always part of America, and you can't really pick a day where that's not relevant. And it also it goes towards library service as well, too. It's yeah. everywhere. So it's always going to be a timely discussion, unfortunately. I'm just going to put in a plug. Um, we've got, I forget which day it is, but we do have another ALA president coming to speak on um, – what is it here? November 20th, uh, uh, Loida Garcia-Fibo is going to be talking about recruiting for diversity. I know it was about 10 years ago I found out that Queens Public Library had a, a system where they were trying to um, get better representation to work in Queens. And so what they were doing was hiring pages out right out of high school and trying to mentor them into librarianship. So when they go to college... Um, they even provided, I think, a small amount of co- scholarship funds for them to try and encourage them and um, gave them a chance to even shadow a librarian. Program ended, but I'm I'm not sure why. Um, I asked Nick Buron, the head librarian there, about it, and um, he said he would like to get it going, but I'm not sure where it stands. I'd like to see the statistics on what their success rate was. I know. Now- they'd have good historical data on who entered librarianship and or left it, by the way. Right. The program's not running anymore, so I, I don't know, you know what they have. Because it's a, good, it's a great profession. It's a great profession for everyone. And we're one of the most, I think, welcoming um, professions on the planet. Yeah, you know, we have to, as Tim mentioned, the pipeline has to be in high school. Well, yeah, since he requires a master's degree, um, in some respects, I don't know how all of you got into librarianship, but... In some respects, for me, it was a fallback position. So it wasn't, I wasn't going into undergrad thinking, oh, I'm going to be a librarian. So it's true. And that's 99% of us, I think. It was always a fallback. It's such yeah. a progressive, it's just a, it's, it's, I came from a nonprofit background doing a lot of grassroots work and was very taken aback by how progressive and forward thinking librarians are. I don't have a librarian degree. I don't have a background in it, but it was a very nice transition from the work that I did to coming here and seeing that this work continued, this this mission continued on a different level. And I think that that's important too, because you have a lot of people who want to do that type of grassroots work and don't look at librarians as being part of that effort. And I really truly believe that we are. I don't think people recognize, people who are coming from the outside recognize beliefs and practices of librarians in the world so much as combating social ills 
progressive policies. So it's interesting, Alicia, to hear how you were surprised to hear that mm-hmm. because you were an outsider. Now you're an insider and you, uh, you, you're teaching us how the world sees us. It was, it, like I said, it was, it was a really, really nice, fresh look at work that I had done at other organizations and seeing the same kind of push for that work here. I just didn't, I, I wasn't expected. And I, I'm curious if other people are, would be just as surprised as I was. I think you hit on something. Well, you know what it is too? People who do go to library school, they get the bug early. So like, even for myself, I, in high school, I worked at a library. So it always kind of just drags you back in. I mean, dragged isn't the right word, but you know, it, it once you get a taste for it and you realize, wait, I can do this for a living and I can get paid to do this. But yes, I have to get a master's degree and you have to do all that other stuff. But when you realize that this is a, a really great profession to be in, and yes, you're not going to make a billion dollars, but you're going to go to bed at night knowing that you've helped someone. And I think people who are profit-driven stockbroker types, you know, not to demean stockbrokers, but, you know, if you have that kind of instinct – this is probably not the job for you unless you're, you're kind of done with that kind of world in life. I know that when I go to bed at night, even if I had a lousy day, I know I helped at least one person. So that's, the again, the silver lining that I – even though I didn't have a great day, I helped one or two people go from point A to point B or start along a, a path towards a solution or maybe I found a solution for them or maybe I taught something new to somebody. And that is why I love what I do. I mean – you can't put a price tag on something like that. And did you work in libraries when you were in high school or college? No, I didn't actually. I didn't until I, my first internship in library school. Wow. <laughs> so. I'm glad you worked out. <laughs> well, I mean, I got my master's in history first before I got my library degree. So I was, of course, using the libraries for research heavily at that point and visiting some major libraries. But um, that was the biggest experience, but yeah. So you had familiarity, just not as a, on the other side of the desk, let's call it. Yeah. The only thing I thought about is when I was working after I got my master's in library science, I thought, man, it would have been really helpful to have the degree before I did the other degree. (laughs) Yeah. Now you had the skills, right? Really trying to find information. Interesting. That's true. Everybody needs to be a librarian before they proceed to their next profession so they can do a good good job at it. Well, this has been great, guys. I really appreciate you taking some time after the conference because you're probably all Zoomed out at this point. But, uh, yeah. you know, really want to thank you for coming on and speaking with us about, you know, kind of like the behind the scenes a little bit. And uh, hopefully if somebody else is planning a, a Zoom conference, um, they can take a little piece of what you guys have done and, and it'll help them to to build a conference as well. Well, thanks for doing this. Um, actually, we really appreciate having you every year, and hopefully we can continue this. Thank you again for having us uh, again, because it it's always fun, and it's always great speaking to amazing people. So thank you for, thank you, for having us on. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, Click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. 
Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.